0: The Arsenal of Freedom is one of those episodes that works, that I enjoy, but is worse the more you think about it. You know what I mean by that, right? Uh, it's the whole, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the whole concept of, you know, turn your brain off kind of enjoyment. Now, I'm not saying this whole episode is turn your brain off stupid. That would be, you know, wrong, basically. But there's a lot of things that when you think about it, it's like, oh, well, wait. Why did this work here, and why did that work here? and why does the why is this going over that way? you know there's just a lot of little questions as you're going throughout it. It just kind of make you wonder none of them really ruined the episode, but the more you go through it, the more you're like, man, this script really needed a second pass, you know, and that's appropriate because this script actually had a bit of an issue getting put out um this was being pushed by a guy I didn't even write his name down. He was someone, He was one of the many people who only lasted for season one of TNG and was like, hey, I'm going to go ahead and, and push this thing. And he'd been pushing this idea in the writer's room as well as in the director's chair uh, for pretty much the entire series thus far. Remember, this is like episode 20 or something like that. In fact, I actually I actually check really quick. This is episode... A dramatic pause... So, yeah, this is listed as 21, so this is the 20th episode uh, of of the franchise so far, and (laughs) they've already been pushing several ideas and elements that they were intending to use going forward. And one of those was Beverly Crusher and Jean-Luc Picard. Now, I'm not sure what I really think of that whole thing... I'm not really sure what my opinion is at the end of the day, so instead I'm just going to recite to you the facts that we know about the situation and ask you for your opinion. The original intent by several of the writers and the creators of TNG was for Beverly and Picard to kind of slowly grow closer together and basically to have their romance be a a recurring subplot thing. Uh, pretty much from season two onwards. Think something similar to other long standing Star Trek relationships like uh, Taurus and Paris, although not that well done, or uh, the connection between Dax and Worf, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Most of the standard long term relationships, they were going with that direction with it. Now, again, I'm going to try to keep my opinion out of this but certain people, and the only one we know for a certainty that was involved with this was Gene Ronbury himself, but Gene Ronbury, as well as other unknown people in the writer's room, basically nixed this idea, not just here, but forevermore, because it was an idea that kept coming up. In fact, it has been reported, although this is entering the realm of rumor, that Patrick Stewart himself actually posited the idea more than once of why why hasn't Picard and Beverly, or excuse me, Picard and Crusher, Shacked up yet? There's so much obvious connection there, obvious friendship. The two actually, and the two actors have great chemistry together. It seems like a perfect fit for that sort of thing from a purely neutral technical perspective. So, why haven't they done it? Now, I've done my research as best as I'm able to do on this. The only concrete answer we have is that the writers, which again involve Gene and an unknown number of other people, wanted Picard to not be connected to anyone so he could have romances of the week. So the idea of Beverly and Jean-Luc was nixed, especially after all the hinting that happened. And what's funny is the two will continue to have a lot of very close intimate scenes throughout the entire rest of the series, actually. And we'll also have... uh, And I don't just mean intimate in a romantic or in a sexual way. The two's friendship continues to grow and be strong throughout the entire series, and in fact, there's some really decent elements of how close these two people are, and they do utilize the charisma and, like I said earlier, chemistry of both actors very well. But as for actually stepping over the line into romance, they only really do that once in a future that they change. So... Now I know, books, etc., but let's, let's just focus on the show for now. So... Which leaves me with the question. What do you think about that? Honest question. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Because I'm not sure what I think of that. On the one hand, I'm not, I, romance for romance's sake actually bugs me in fiction. It's one of the reasons I have that reputation for being anti-romance. It's because most of the time in, in fiction, romance is there to add sex appeal or because it's a checkbox that they're trying to fill out on a list, you know, there's no actual reason for it, it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't do anything, it's just there. Now, we will see TNG in specific use romance to good effect in later episodes. In fact, Picard himself will have two separate instances where, in my opinion, the romance of the week actually worked because of how much it highlighted the characters. But the argument could be leveled that they could have done the same exact thing with him and Crusher. Now, because I am still giving my opinion, like I said, I'm not sure what I think about it one way or the other. But I will say this. If they did want to connect Beverly and Jean-Luc in a romantic way, let me just go ahead and say on the surface that I am okay with that. Because chemistry, charisma, backstory, characters, etc. I do think it could work for both characters. And I do think, given what we see in this series, it would help to flesh both characters out. So I think they could do something with that. However, I wouldn't do it this early. Hints? Oh, absolutely drop hints. If you've been paying attention, they have been dropping hints uh, in pretty much every sequence where the two of them are connected throughout this show. There have been hints that there is a strong connection between Jean-Luc and Beverly. That's, that's been very overt. But I wouldn't have them actually get together this early on. Now, it's worth noting that wasn't the original script. The original script was that she was going to confess her love to him, and then we'll see where that goes from there kind of a thing. But for me, I would, I would push it off a little bit. This is, however, it's worth noting the advantage of hindsight, as well as many years studying fiction and creative works in general. But I will... I can't believe I keep using Voyager as an example for this, but it is a good example. I will once again point to the Tom Paris and Bellana Taurus relationship. Remember, that built up for a long time. was a very strong recurring theme, and they made, they made a point of establishing the friendship before they started really getting into the romance of it. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was such a strong buildup and such a strong and satisfying conclusion. They earned it, it to use my own terminology. They, they worked for it, and they earned that romance. And then they cleared their throat. I like that. Um, the, the the earning it, not the clearing the throat part. So I think it could work if they built up to it with Beverly and Jean-Luc. It also probably is understandable why Star Trek fans, and I've heard this in conventions, I've heard this from people uh, many times, why several people have have logically assumed that they were building up to one. Because if you pay attention, most of the signs I mentioned, you know, the, the closer intimacy, strong fe- friendship, good, you know, Dynamic character scenes between the two are a recurring thing throughout most of the series So a lot of fans especially when the show was coming out Logically assumed they were doing exactly that that they were doing this on purpose Deliberately to build into an eventual relationship between the two But again as I've mentioned that idea was pretty much locked down in the writers room Uh, I will admit I have a theory just a theory. Thanks for watching. That, please don't sue me. That Rick Berman was involved in this, not because I hate Rick Berman, but because remember Roddenberry has already, as of this point in the show, as the point we're at now, started to take a little bit more of a back seat, and this will continue to happen until he's basically not even involved in the show at all. Uh, sometime around season three, I'll have to look up the exact episode, but it doesn't take long. From that point on, Rick Berman is the is the showrunner. He's the one pretty much in charge. And one of the things Rick Berman did was he tried very hard to stay true to what he believed Roddenberry's vision was. Basically, he was trying to keep playing Roddenberry throughout the show. So in other words, I think that given the fact that Roddenberry was the most vocal antagonist and the only one we could definitively nail down as the person who insisted that Beverly and jean Lick do not end up together, that Rick Berman would similarly take up that torch because Roddenberry had taken up that torch. This is all, however, conjecture. So, as always, looking forward to your guys' comments and thoughts. I want to give credit for Les Les Landau, because he directed this episode. Now, I've actually mentioned him before, and I'm pretty sure I've mentioned him in the past over on Voyager. Uh, Les Landau is not the best director but he is a very strong recurring Star Trek director he's done some very good episodes this is his first real directing credit he's worked as a second unit director or as an assistant director in most of season one this is the first one he was handed the reins of and I do have to say he does a pretty good job of it nothing phenomenal you know nothing groundbreaking no really fancy cuts or presentation or blocking but he does do a competent job of it and that's pretty much going to be his style henceforth Um, I don't actually have much else to share sure about that, but I wanted to talk about it. Now, I'm going to pr- butcher this name, but Vincent Schiavelli is also in this episode as the peddler. Now, some of you probably are like, who? He's an interesting character, because, or I should say, and he's an interesting actor. He has unfortunately passed away. Uh, he has a very distinct face. And that very distinct face landed him a lot of roles over the years and basically got him handed around as usually a secondary or a minor character or a one-off guest star or what I would usually call in video game terms an NPC in a whole lot of works. There's a pretty good chance you've seen this gentleman at least at one point in your life or heard him. He's also voiced characters. Uh, I know he did something in the Batman animated series. I forget the character, forgive me, but that's one I know uh, off the top of my head. So it was kind of nice to see him again, although it did make me a little bit sad. I do think he does a, a surprisingly good job of the peddler. Like, there's this great bit where they're down and he's like, oh, isn't he just the perfect killing machine? Yes, I want you to cut him off. Just pull him back? Well, why would I want to do that? It's just... And he, he nails that line perfectly. He doesn't actually come across as villainous, as I imagine most actors would do it. He just comes across as a salesman, for good and for bad, and it's just but we haven't properly explored this yet why would it, you know it's it's just good stuff um <clears throat> so i actually have a lot of notes about this one so forgive me i'm kind of collating my thoughts here i will say this so i mentioned earlier that the more you think about this episode the more it doesn't make sense uh the timeline of this episode is a little bit questionable so we know that the uss drake came here under uh, what was his name uh rice captain rice who Riker knew back at the Academy, and it came here relatively recently? Now, I have to add that with a question mark, because they don't really give a definitive timeline to that. But I mention that because it is implied, based on the way they're talking, that this happened pretty recently, and then the ship just wiped out, right? Now, the Rice was here specifically to investigate the sudden lack of communication from what was otherwise an interstellar species, and that's logical. You know, this, these people, the Minons or whatever, the Minosians, I guess. Um, the the Arsenal of Freedomians, maybe? I don't know. These people obviously were a part of the intergalactic community. Uh, the, in fact, the original script had them selling weapons to the Romulans in previous things. But regardless, these people are involved in the galactic community. And so when you have a planet basically just go off the map, you want to look into that. That makes sense. But I bring that up. Because that all implies, at least to me, that this happened recently and quickly. That, what it, that when the weapons finally became too perfect, as Picard put it, and they killed themselves with their own perfect weapon, nuclear weapon analogy, blah, 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 that it happened very quickly and very recently. The thing is... When they go down on the planet, there's plenty of foliage, which is already kind of questionable. They don't mention anything about signs of damage or ruins, and there are two distinct instances where they highlight the fact that the equipment is functional, and yet, at the same time, dilapidated. There's a sequence where they have this giant cannon gun, and they have to pull all of this this leaves and crap off of it. And that doesn't just happen overnight. And then when they fall into the cave, that's actually one of the control rooms for their people. Which again, covered in moss and and dirt and filth and all that, implying that this happened a while ago. This is not the first and only example of this script's inconsistencies. This and to explain what I mean by that, this isn't bad writing. It just feels like this, ep- this script really did need a second pass, like I said earlier. Because this little stuff could be explained away fairly quickly and easily. And, and in fact, I imagine most of you are going to be like, oh, well, it was just this and this. Or you're either thinking that in your head or typing it in your comment section. And I know, it, there's ways to talk around a lot of the problems in this episode. But the episode doesn't, which is my point. Anyways, moving on. Um, let's also talk about uh, the fact that Riker was offered the Drake. That is interesting to me for many reasons, not the least of which being the fact that Riker has only really had two particular character traits that could be really considered himself and not just an example of a bad script that doesn't know the character yet, that have been ascribed to him. One is his ambition, and the other is his specific ambition to captain a vessel. Now, the second one has been called out, word for word, more than once, actually, and the former has been consistent in almost every one of his portrayals where he's actually being a character, which admittedly is not that many, but point remaining. So I bring this up that Riker deliberately went out of his way to not gain captaincy, specifically to serve a tour of duty on the Enterprise. I don't think that's inconsistent, it's worth noting. I think it more shows that the fact that Riker's ambition outweighs his ambition to be a captain. Because, let's be 100% honest, it doesn't actually take that much to be a captain in Starfleet. No offense. I mean, being the captain of the Enterprise, that takes a lot. I mean, Jean-Luc Picard has had a very historied, storied, long, extensive career, even as a captain. It's worth noting. He has been a captain for, what, like 23 years before he took the Enterprise? But being a captain of any old ship, that's a lot easier. So in my mind, this is the way I think of this, Riker doesn't just want a ship. He wants the ship. He either wants the Enterprise itself or another top-of-the-line modern vessel, a galaxy-class cruiser or something else that, that isn't even made yet. And he knows that serving a tour of duty as an XO on the flagship of the Federation is an excellent way to mainline that career path but I digress. Um, so the, they go down, small, mobile team. Okay, that's cool. And open comms. Like, there's a couple of things that are surprisingly intelligent, and, and it makes me wonder why Starfleet stopped just doing these in the Enterprise, and the Voyager, and, and later TNG era. Open comms is such a duh, obvious thing when going into a situation this dangerous. I'm surprised it's not standard operating procedure. It's also interesting that Yar specifically calls out a reason to have a small away team. In fact, I think this is one of the very few times I've ever heard a legitimate reason given for an away team that's three or four people. In this case, her statement is that she wants something small and mobile in order to be able to scout and look into the situation that is very dangerous and risky, so, which, which does make a degree of sense under certain circumstances. It doesn't quite explain why they send down... Data, Riker, and Yar to be this party, but that's just Star Trek at this point. I think we just need to accept that somewhere along the lines. Now, then there's the scene with Rice. Now, I have to admit two things about this scene. First, it made me laugh. Even this time, even rewatching it, the, the lollipop gag admit is, is something that I find legitimately funny. And I remember when I was a kid watching this for the first time, that made me laugh so hard. It's a good ship, yeah. And it's, it's not even, like, too obvious, like a joke like that could be. It's just, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a lollipop. And he plays it completely straight, which helps sell the joke. However, <sighs> analysis mode, right? However, going through that with analysis mode really makes me question what the point of that scene is. Remember, the second thing we learn about that scene is that he's a fake. The first thing we learn is that that's Rice. Hey, Rice, what's going on? And then, like, within a few seconds, calm beeps, hey, that's not Rice. Okay. And then, like, a few more seconds later, Data comes by and says, in a very long and drawn-out way, that's not Rice. And Riker says, yeah, I know. So why have that scene exist at all? I know this sounds weird, but it serves no purpose because Riker doesn't do anything with it. He doesn't try to learn any information about who this is or why he is. In fact, if you're watching and listening to his dialogue, you'll notice that everything he says is done in a manner to try and prove that that's not really Rice. But he knows that. Twice, actually. And when he finally confronts him, he doesn't confront him over, "Ha, you're this, or you're just trying to get information. He just says, You're a phony! A big, fat phony! (laughs) It feels like a wasted moment because it could have shown us the tactical Riker, which we will see later in this show, the Riker who should have picked up on the fact that this isn't Rice. Again, I feel like a second pass with a few niggles could have really helped this. Let me give you just a direct example of what I'm talking about because I don't like to criticize without giving alternative suggestions. So they're on open comms, right? So obviously they're scanning, so you can't get rid of that. But you could have it be like, Riker, we need to talk to you. And Riker says, one moment, Captain. In kind of a, you know, this is important way. And show that Riker has already picked up on the fact that this is not Rice. Because let's be honest, Rice is acting nothing like a standard human being. I mean, it's really, really obvious. In fact, it's a little bit too obvious. I wouldn't change that, though. I would leave that as is. And have Riker just not... Basically his quick snippet with Picard show that Riker has picked up on this. Have him play along for a bit. Keep the lollipop jack... Gag in. That's good stuff. Then have Data come over, puzzled. And don't have Data say anything. I'll use my 3DS as a tricorder, right? Have Data just kind of like... Like with this puzzled expression on his face as he looks at his tricorder, looks at Rice. Don't say anything. No need. We get it, and we have picked up on it already because of the way Riker's talking and the way Rice is acting. And change Riker's dialogue a bit around to try and have him basically counter-questioning. So every time he gives a false answer, you know, like the lollipop thing, he says, oh, our max speed is warp 7. What about your max speed? Oh, our warp speed is warp three And basically try to pump this fake Rice for information on it, what exactly is happening, until finally... uh, probably have something like Data or Picard, someone jump in and say, sir, I don't understand, and that's when the, the, you know, the mask is unveiled, so to speak. The hologram goes away, and then they have to shoot the thing. Just a little bit of a polish pass would have helped that scene tremendously. But it's not actually a bad scene. You see why I'm so conflicted about this episode. Anyways. So, there's also a couple of bits of lines of dialogue, which, again, feel like they were put in and then not really thought about. For example, there's this bit where Riker is put into the stasis field for future interrogation. Now, that makes perfect sense. But then Riker, you know, uh, excuse me, not Riker, Data is asked, what's his status? Is he alive? Can you hear that rain? Jeez, that's loud. (laughs) Data is asked for his status, and Data's response, you know, Picard flat out says, is he alive? And Data says, unknown. Da, 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 da. Very next scene, you know, they beam down and Data's looking at him and Data says, Yeah, no, he's fine. He's alive. He actually, in fact, I wrote down word for word where he says he's alive when Crusher asks for medical data. <laughs> you, you see what I mean about this? Just a little altering of the dialogue. Obviously, it was put there for a dun dun dun, Riker must be dead. But come on. You're not going to kill Riker off of it. I mean, killing off a main character in season one of TNG isn't going to happen. Give me a break. So they they so they're like, all right, we need to get out of here. Notice that the shields go on automatically on the Enterprise. That's a very interesting thing that actually will be touched on a couple of times in the future. But for the most part, isn't something that's automatic. For the most part, shields have to be manually raised. There's a reason Riker's one of Riker's catchphrases is, "Shields up, red alert." Right? Like, I bet you can hear Jonathan Frakes saying that in your head right now. Shields up, Ruttler, because he's got a specific timber. I can't do it right now, but, you know, he's got this specific timber for how he says it. But it's interesting that they would automatically raise in response to, basically, an unknown. That actually makes sense to me as a navigational hazard, not a battle hazard. There is something that, it, that the sensors have detected. It is very close to the ship, especially when you consider spatial terms. Something being within a few clicks of, of a starship is practically brushing against it from space terms. So, you know, something that close and unknown and that quickly, because it just appears, of course the shields are going to go up. That makes perfect sense. Again, navigational thing. Um, also, I, I just feel like putting this out, I've decided not to do this as much as it would probably be fun from a purely curiosity perspective. I've I've thought about going through, as we're going through here, and writing down all the times that you could beam through the shields in the history of Star Trek, and all the times that you couldn't beam through the shields as a plot point, because there's several times where the plot point is that you can't beam through the shields, including this episode. Geordi flat out says we can't beam them up through the shields, and that pretty much presents the dilemma of the episode. This episode wouldn't be an episode if you could beam up through the shields they just beam them up and freaking leave but you see i mean this this is kind of a plot pointer. so shield goes up they can't beam through um someone mentioned recently i forget which one of my comments it was one of my star trek comments mentions how bizarre the Threat of the Week concept really is. And I agree, for many reasons. But the reason they mentioned was the... I I mean, you've got the Romulan Star Empire, the Klingon Empire, the Cardassian Union, the Ferengi Alliance, the United Federation of Planets, and so forth and so on. I'm not going to go all around, but, you know, you've got all these major galactic powers, and then, like, the Threat of the Week shows up and just schools the Enterprise, usually, in particular... But the Enterprise is a galaxy-class top-of-the-line cruiser, heavy cruiser, actually, which is comparable to all the other ships of all the other empires I just mentioned, right? So that means, by logical discourse, that the threat of the weak is basically just stronger than all the major empires of the quadrants, which just makes it even sillier that they just don't really do anything with that. And I bring this up in this episode because in this episode, to be completely blunt, it really does strain credulity that a thing that, that, that would literally fit in my hands, or if we're really stretching its definitions, something that might be the size of a shuttle is capable of threatening the Galaxy-class cru- heavy cruiser to the point of of literally risking its destruction. That is pretty impressive for people who just sell weapons for a living on one planet, and nothing else really. Oh, also it has a cloak. Of course it has a cloak. And an adaptive mechanism. Oh, also, I will say that the adapting thing is really badly presented, but is an intriguing enough concept that I'm willing to let it go. This is just a problem of effects and budget and the times, really. The the way that they present the adaptability of the probe is, is fairly mundane. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Oh no, I'm shooting at it, and then it dodges! But then I adjust the dodge, and then it just stands there. Right? You know, it's it's not very impressive. But I do like the concept, and we all know where the adaptability thing will eventually go in Star Trek. Um, it has actually been stated, although this is anecdotal, it's worth noting, that this concept was at least one of the uh, inspirations for the Borg. So, yay. Anyways... <clears throat> So, good stuff for the most part. Good stuff for the most part. Um, Picard and Beverly fall into a cave, and I want to talk about that very briefly. Obviously, that's the scene, those are the scenes, I should say, that were the most rewritten in this episode. And it kind of shows, because those scenes don't really serve a lot of purpose. It, It feels like filler. She's in trouble. He's there to try and help. Like, they don't even do something with the classic trope of the doctor is injured and needs to coach the non-doctor in helping her. They don't even really do that much with that. And we get a tiny bit of backstory about her, but that's effectively it. There's no real camaraderie. There's no real friendship. There's no real interaction of any significant point. It, they're just kind of there. And again, I'm not trying to sound too negative here, but it's so obvious why, considering they're all like, uh, we need to get rid of the romance. Okay, um, they're there. All right, moving on. Right? Because cuz because that change was done pretty far into this episode's production cycle to the point where they were already uh, approaching the point of filming and they were like, uh shoot, we need we need to make some changes here. So, troubled production blah 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 blah. But I do want to say uh one thing about it. Absolute props to Gates McFadden and, and Patrick Stewart. How many of you have ever had to deal with fleas? I have. I'll raise my hand. Um, I hope he's not watching this, because I know that he's still aware that I exist and that I do this show. But I actually had a roommate once who brought a cat in who was infested with fleas, and I hated every second of it. It was some... I mean, that's not true. It was probably, I'd say, the fifth most miserable time of my life living there and sleeping in a place, the place where I sleep at night, being infested with fleas. When I finally moved out of that place, and and I, I... flea-bombed the ever-living crap out of the place and all of my stuff, and ended up throwing a lot of stuff away, just to make absolutely sure. And they didn't come with me. I do know how to deal with bugs. I'm pretty good at it, very experienced at it. But, God almighty, I hate fleas. Why am I bringing this up? The cave they were filming in was infested with fleas. And so Gates McFadden and Patrick Stewart, in addition to having a scene that should have been, you know, this big character moment, at least we think, maybe, possibly was in addition to being filler also very, very uncomfortable for both actors. Yay. Anyways. uh, There's a scene I I haven't really talked about the the stuff in space yet. And I want to mention that uh, kind of separate. So before I keep going I do want to mention one thing here. There's a bit with Yar and Riker and they both come across as incompetent, and I don't mean that to sound too negative, but considering the A plot or B plot or whatever you want to call it up on the ship, which is intricately tied into the A plot, so you know, good A plot, B plot formula in this episode, uh, is all about being very creative under, under stress and not really being fully experienced, but being able to pull out a victory nonetheless, and that's pretty much the theme of everything that's going on at the Enterprise, which I'll talk about in a second. Seeing Riker, the experienced commander, and Yar, the experienced lieutenant of security and tactical, basically fumble about and have no idea how to deal with things is almost embarrassing, by contrast. And there's even this little back and forth where Riker and Yar are discussing tactics with the final probe, and they basically come up with nothing. The best option they have is, let's split up to buy time. And then that option is even shot down. For no really explained reason, because buying for time is not an invalid strategy. Now I know, I know, armchair you know tactician blah blah blah. But my point is, again, even in the episode, people under the gun and under pressure manage to pull out a victory by outthinking their opponent. Yar and Riker do nothing; they basically argue with each other, and then Picard stumbles upon the solution by saying, "Oh, we want to buy it." Oh. Before I get to that, really quick, though, I wrote it down. 11.75 meters is not a small drop. That is actually a very long drop. I have dropped just a little bit short of that in my real life once uh, back in uh, a gym thing. I'm not going to bore you with it. It was a whole uh, 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 pseudo-Olympic thing we had going on in high school. Um, But even that would have been, I guess, probably about another three or so meters about what I dropped, and what I dropped was scary as hell. So I'm not trying to say that it's a not a big deal that he drops it, but you notice, everyone's like, "Oh my God, Data, are you sure you could withstand this?" You'd think Data would know by this point in his life, you know, the limits of his physical capacity. And it's also worth noting that when he drops, he's fine. He doesn't even go clong and have to recover. He's just, "Hi, I'm here." I mentioned this, <clears throat> in addition to the credulity problem, because. This is actually going to be a recurring theme throughout most of TNG, including the movies, actually. No, seriously. The writers cannot seem to decide exactly the limits of Data's capacities, toughness, strength, etc. And so it will be presented fairly inconsistently, or just up and down, or him slowly getting stronger throughout the course of the series, depending on who you ask and why. There's ways around that, admittedly. I just thought I'd point it out, because this is the first time it really comes up. Unless you count him lifting Wesley earlier. Oh! Very small point, by the way. I want to mention that I never really noticed before. When the, uh, I guess the second or the third, I think it's the third uh, probe, the second from the last probe shows up, to go after Riker, Yar, and Data. This is before he drops down. As soon as they see it, Data's out in the open. Yar is going over the 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 log, and Riker's going over the log. Data grabs Yar, throws her to safety, and then starts to fight the be- the probe. I'd never noticed that before. Now, another little interesting thing is the fact that you might be like, well, of course he's throwing her to safety. It's, it's the intelligent, smart thing to do, and I agree. But he doesn't do that to Riker, who, it's worth noting, is actually more exposed than Yar was, and could have used the help more than Yar did. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever that this was not a deliberate thing on behalf of the creators, on behalf of the director, on behalf of Spiner, or the writers, or whatever. But with the advantage of hindsight, and from a purely in-universe perspective, it does make you wonder how much Data's, for lack of a better term, caring about Yar is one of those things that was in the back of his processes the whole time. You know what I mean? In other words, obviously Data does not love her. He lacks the capacity. But Data does understand the co- the concept of value. He will demonstrate this many times. He has already demonstrated to this point. So it's not like he can't... He, he may not be able to feel attachment to a thing, but he can understand the value or importance of a thing and therefore make it more important in his calculations than other things. In other words... It would be interesting to think if he saved Yar because she is more valuable to him than Riker is. Just food for thought. I also want to mention one other quick thing. It's interesting, again, the similarities between the the Minosians or whatever and the Borg, because in both cases, uh, there's a lot of brute forcing going on. The Borg are not subtle. I mean, I've, I've done essays, literally essays for school, but in addition, I've done it on my show about the Borg and their function. And I will be talking about the Borg again because they will come up throughout the course of TNG. But I bring this up because the, the, the weapon that they show here on this planet is so brute force. There's no real subtlety or cleverness about it. It's like that kid used to play, you know whatever, you know, Final Fantasy or X-Men or whatever with, on the playground, you know, playing pretend over against the fence because all the other kids looked at you weird, but definitely not speaking from personal experience here. I used to be Vega. I'll go ahead and admit that from, from Street Fighter. <laughs> but it used to, you know, it's the thing where you're going and playing over there, and there's this one kid who's like, oh, I'm going to come at you, and you say, Aha, I've got you with this. And he's like, ah, oh, you got me with this. But now I have a thing that prevents exactly that, right? There's no tactics, there's no cleverness. There's no outthinking. It's just, oh, you hit me with A. Well, now A can't hurt me. Oh, you hit me with B. Well, now B can't hurt me. And basically, slowly, brick by brick, building a wall to push into and crush you. Now, that can work from a fictional perspective. It's one of the reasons the Borg are so damn terrifying, actually. It's their implacability. It's the The unstoppable force that just continues to move forward, regardless of what you do to it. And I think that, more than anything else, adds a lot to the tension of the ground scenes in this episode, which, frankly, are otherwise pretty lacking. Which, I suppose we'll pause for a moment. We'll continue talking about the ground scenes in a bit. But now we need to talk about the space scenes. Let me just go ahead and be blunt. The space scenes are awesome in this episode. I think they really helped salvage what otherwise would be a below-average TNG episode, even by Season 1 standards. Because, first of all, how many of you liked it when Hikaru Sulu took command of the Excelsior? I immediately raised my hand on that because um, Sulu pretty much perfectly slid into the role of command. In fact, it was such a natural I don't have a better word for it. It just, it fit perfectly. It was like Tetrising right into position there. That I'm amazed they didn't have Sulu as a command officer more or before this point. Because it, it worked perfectly, in my opinion. And it's part of the reason why a lot of people, myself included, were really excited about the possibility of an Excelsior show back when they first started teasing and, and hinting that idea around. It eventually turned into Enterprise instead, but you know, whatever. But I mention this because I got the same impression from Jordy in this episode. He slides into the command slot so naturally and seamlessly that I'm amazed they, they ended up putting him in engineering on this show because him being a command line officer fit really well. Now, I know, I know, there's not a lot of room to do that. You already have the EXO and the second XO, so, you know, where are you going to put Jordy? right? I mean, you can't put the super intelligent android in engineering. That would be ridiculous. But... My facetiousism aside, I will say that it was a very, it was a treat to see Le- LeVar Burton finally get to really stretch as an actor on this show. He's had a couple of character moments, but this is the first time we really see a Geordie centric piece. He does a very good job of someone who knows what command means. Too many people think command just means giving orders. There's a lot more to that, a lot more uh, mentality, a lot more. Uh, uncertainty, and a lot more commitment to that than a lot of people seem to understand. One of my favorite favorite phrases, and I use this all the time in my real life, is commit, because the worst thing you could do is in a crisis situation is hesitate. Let me use driving as an example. You're you're starting to pull into an intersection, and this other car comes out of nowhere and comes at you. Right now. You hesitating going, oh, is going to make that situation far more dangerous than it otherwise would. You need to pick a strategy and commit like that. That's what I mean when I say commit. You know, pull left, pull left hard, or slam on the brakes, or whatever it is you decide to do. Commit to it. Don't start a strategy and then hesitate. I have actually seen near wrecks and actual wrecks in real life because other drivers have not committed. Because they've been like, oh, and then the other driver read what they were starting to do, adapted, and then they, the first driver changed their mind and crash. This is especially true when you're in charge of a military situation. Now, I know, I know, Starfleet military, blah, 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 blah. Obviously, I've given my opinion on this. There's no denying that this is a military situation. This is a crisis, military, chain of command, orders kind of a situation, right? Which brings me to my major point. Why in God's name do they ruin the otherwise excellent space sequence with... Oh, what's his name? I wrote, it, I wrote down his name. Logan. With Logan. Why is Wolverine on it? I'm kidding. Why is Logan involved in this at all? I wanted to smack him. Like, okay, you've got an otherwise excellent piece with Jordy manning up, giving the right orders, encouraging his crew, helping out, making the right call, by the way, more than once... You've even got a bit where Troy is actually worth a damn, where Troy comes to him and talks to him about the difference between being a good commander and being a good leader. Oh, my God, right? I think this is the first time Troy's done something useful in the history of the show so far. (laughs) No offense. But then Logan comes up and says, I should be in command. And the best part is, Logan is literally getting in the way of things functioning and moving properly. Ignoring the fact that he abandons main engineering, and he is mentioned to be the chief engineer in this episode, he ab- <laughs> was it, Was it what, our third chief engineer? He is... And I've heard everyone's explanation on that. It's just... Come on. Um, he abandons main engineering in a crisis situation to come up and say, no, no, I should be in charge. And he, does, and he comes across as petty and petulant when he does it. Not completely. But the way he says it is just... It makes it so obvious to me my opinion, that he is not doing this because he legitimately feels he would be a better commander or that he legitimately feels Geordi is an incompetent commander. He does it because he's a lieutenant and Geordi is not. And that's it. Why soil an otherwise fairly excellent sequence of events with this artificial bullcrap? I guess this is to show that Starfleet is filled with a bunch of morons? I suppose that's possible, in complete contrast with Coming of Age, which I just talked about. What's even best, I have a note here on my notes. I'm looking at it. It literally says, seriously, Logan, get back in engineering, you prat, is actually what my note says on my piece of paper here, and... Jordy even acknowledges this Logan says I am more experienced and higher rank and Jordy says that's damn right and I'm counting on that you get down there and you do what you gotta do that's pretty much the exact correct response to that now it is worth noting that I have actually debated this exact issue of this exact episode with people in the real-life United States military who are also Star Trek fans. Obviously, as I've mentioned before, I have a little bit of a military backing in my family, not in me, I've never been in the military. Um, and I've had friends in the military as well. And the general uh, consensus has always been basically leaning towards my side of the argument. While Geordi is technically outranked, he is a bridge officer who is a command line officer who was trusted with the situation and is not clinging to authority. Jordy is making the right calls now if Geordie was in over his head or didn't know how to give give the right orders or was otherwise basically someone who should not be in charge then absolutely Logan should have made that call and said get the hell off the bridge but Jordy was doing none of those things and Logan could tell that in fact there's a later bit which irritates the snot out of me where Jordy leaves the planet and Logan says, You're leaving them behind. And Jordy even goes like this. It's like, Not now. <laughs> and then Logan starts laying into him about leaving them behind. I'm sorry, what was your suggestion again, Logan? Something about leaving because we couldn't handle the energy strains, if I'm recalling correctly. You moron. He literally starts criticizing Jordy. For no other reason than to criticize Geordi. And that, I think, is... And that's my biggest point of evidence for why this isn't about any actual chain of command or competency. This is about Logan wanting to show that his dick is bigger. Which, uh... No. Ah, There's also a wonderful little tidbit, if I may, where, uh... Logan says to Jordy, and I, I, this is another one of those things I've missed every viewing up until this one. Logan says to Jordy, You can't fight what you can't see. Then, at a meet, the moment he says that line, it cuts to LaForge, who, I mean, right? But the funny thing is, LeVar Burton actually raises an eyebrow very subtly, just a little bit like, Really, dude? <laughs> just, really? Okay. I like that. I'm pretty sure that was a deliberate, at least on LeVar's part, if not and part of the director. Um, I kind of wish I could say more, so let's just talk a little bit more about the space stuff really quick. First of all, this kind of a situation is exactly why the saucer separation thing is actually a cool concept in lore. We're in a deadly situation. We need to stay behind and try to do what we can to fight this deadly situation. But taking everyone into battle on this is not really a great idea. So saucer goo. The only downside is, of course, it should be more logical. Basically, there's some budget and production reasons why this doesn't happen every time the Enterprise goes into battle. Because you'll notice pretty much every battle scene from Henceforth has the Enterprise with the saucer attached because that is a much cheaper and easier model to film basically. So, I'm bringing this up because there's a little bit of inconsistency with that, because it does make perfect sense. The saucer section has the families, and the more or less non-essential battle stuff, so you know, the, the more mall stuff tends to be up on the saucer section, and the more functional ship and battle stuff tends to be down on the battle section. There's a reason it's called the battle bridge, right? Sense make? So, logically, the two should separate all the damn time. By all accounts, I've not been able to verify this 100%, but by all accounts, this was the original intention, that they did originally want to have regular saucer separations. In fact, it's probably one of the reasons why most of the times the saucer separation thing happens. It happens in Season 1, when they were still establishing these ideas. Um, Shrug, I just wanted to comment on that really quick. So Jordy goes back, and this is where things piss me off a little bit. Because down on the planet, Picard figures out the solution, which is to say, we buy it! And then it's over. That's it. He wins. Uh, The jamming goes away. The signal blocking goes away. Yar and Riker are saved. That was it. Maybe I'm a moron, but first of all, that's bad. I mean, from a pure writing perspective, that is not a satisfying conclusion to a threat. Especially since it didn't really involve any thought. That wasn't Picard really thinking his way around the situation. If you'll notice, he didn't suggest that idea. The the frickin' peddler did. Picard was like, "Ah, oh, God, yes, we're done, please. And the guy's like, oh, so you want to buy it? And with that prompting, Picard picks up on it. Now, yes, I understand they don't understand trade because they're morons. I get that concept. Look, getting rid of money is is one thing, but trade is a fairly basic concept. Come on. So, okay, so he doesn't understand the concept of an economic purchase or currency, even though they've just talked about how these people were arms dealers for wars, so for some reason it never occurred to him to just say, yes, I'll take 50 or whatever in order to to, to deal with this situation. I can at least accept that, even though it is still... Well, you know what? No, I take that back. I'm not going to be that generous. I can't accept that. Between Riker... Yar, Data, Picard, and Crusher, all fairly intelligent and competent people, none of them had the idea of just say, we'll buy them. Remember, they knew this was a demonstration. I, should, I shouldn't say that. They, it was hinted that this was a demonstration at the beginning of the episode, and then after the guy shows up, they know for a fact that it's a demonstration. So, <laughs> nobody... I mean, at least Picard should have picked up on that, or Data for that matter, the moment he said, oh yeah, we're going to show you exactly what this this puppy can really do. Oh, of course, you've done an excellent demonstration, I'll I'll take 15. That's such a classic Star Trek move, too, to be able to think around the thing, right? And it's even more jarring because that's exactly what Geordi does credit to the episode credit to season 1 of tng but they don't technobabble this solution jordy does the very risky and dangerous maneuver of going into atmosphere knowing that the probe and its short-range weapons because it's been short-range this whole time will have to follow and that turbulence and distortion will give it away regardless of its cloak and they can target it and fire that's brilliant that's outthinking your p- opponent that's great why didn't Picard do something like that? And I, I, I really hate to continue this. Like I said, I don't want to nitpick this episode too much, but I have two final nitpicks. The first is, within seconds of destroying the thing, Geordi says, Shields down. Uh, you guys are still in atmosphere, right? <laughs> Losing deflectors actively? Maybe you want to get up a little bit? For, I know, I know. That, that's definitely a nitpick. You know what isn't a nitpick? Picard says we'll buy it. And the one probe goes away. Why is the probe still attacking the Enterprise? I have heard Star Trek fans for many years try to worm away around this to give a proper explanation. I've never heard one that I find satisfying. If you guys have one, please, by all means, share. Because this doesn't make any goddamn sense to me at all. Like, the moment he says, Oh, yes, I'm one, pull it off. The guy says, done. And the probe that's hunting Yar and and Riker vanishes You can't tell me it couldn't have done that up in space. Oh, and it's also worth noting that the one up in space never did the adapting, evolving thing that was always on the ground. They only ever fight the one up in space, which just has a cloak, super mega power, and lots of maneuverability, so whatever. Now, the funny thing is, this would be very easy to fix. Very easy. All you'd have to do is rearrange some scenes. Again, a second pass on the script. Make it so that Picard is down there. I've already given my complaints about the Picard solution, so let's just say that's fixed. But move that after Geordi's solution. Have Geordi go down there. Have him do this brilliant tactic. Have him take it down and have them pull out and be like, Okay, we we did it. We managed to outthink and outmaneuver our superior opponent. Thank God. And then have them be like, All right, now what are we going to do? And then you could even have the ramping up tension of, Sir, we're detecting another probe being launched or something. Because remember, that's what it's supposed to do, right? Each one's supposed to get better. So, oh God, we just barely defeated that one. What are we going to do about the next one? Cut down to the planet. Picard figures out the solution. Both probes go away. Ah, okay. That way you could still have that victory and not have it be just kind of a, why is this still here kind of a situation. Like I said, just, just shoving that scene over would have helped so much. Pretty sure that's all I have to say. Uh, oh, except for one last thing. I like this episode. I do. Legitimately, despite its significant issues and the fact that it really needed some additional help in the script. But what the hell is with the coda of this episode? Like, I feel like uh, Les Landau just basically looked at the two extras. I can't think of their name. They actually have names. But, you know, the two people with Jordy and, and said, I want you to grin as much as possible for every second you're on camera for the coda. Sir warps be locked in and ready to go. Okay, we're gonna it just felt like what they were trying to go for was the relief these people felt at having managed this incredibly difficult task while being you know junior crewmen, but instead they come off as just grinning idiots. It doesn't it doesn't work for me. Um, and as ever because I like to Give actual ideas rather than just criticism, what I would have had them do is I would have had body posture be completely different. I I can't do it properly because of my green screen setup. But have them like just, you know, just, oh, yes, sir. Laying in a course. Laying in a course for the saucer section. You're just sounding a little bit winded, you know, and clearly relieved, like, yes, sir, of course. Ah, There we go. Engaging, sir. You know, something like that rather than Locking in can I don't know. I don't know. That's all I've got for this one. I talked a little a long time about this one. Wow, I apologize guys. I hope you've enjoyed my diatribe, I will be seeing you guys next time.